We return to our show with Roger Harris speaking about the issue of the legitimacy of the claims the United States and Juan Guaido made that he is president of Venezuela. Sure, yeah. let, let's go through it really quickly. Okay. Kind of legalese, but Venezuelan constitution, the constitution, and I, I should mention where that constitution came from. Yeah. One of the first things the Bolivarian Revolution did was it had a constituent assembly. And the people of Venezuela elected representatives to that constituent assembly, and they completely rewrote their constitution, something that we could do here. And they made it much more democratic, much more inclusive, and they had constitutions printed out in these little blue books. And actually, during that period, when they rewrote it and right after that, you'd go on the street and people would actually have copies of the Constitution and they could actually quote from it because they were very, very proud of having created a whole new Constitution. Mm-hmm. So the Constitution had a, a lot of checks and balances. And one of them was Article... And when, when was that vote? Do you remember the Constitution? I, I think it was a, around 2000. And, and I also just want to mention before you go on, because I think this is really important. You know, we call Maduro a, a dictator, yet Venezuelan election history really speaks for itself. The number of elections, there was even a recall referendum that the United States helped finance and ultimately required Chavez, based on the number of signatures, to be stood up and re-voted on. Can you imagine if we had a recall referendum in this country? So we're very quick to demonize other processes as undemocratic. They have an electoral process in which they have not just electronic balloting, but my understanding is they have paper balloting that matches up. And so they have independent authorities they're looking at it, but they also have their own independent electoral commission that's monitoring that stuff. So they take this democratic process very, very seriously and then and, and actualize it. But I, I apologize for interrupting, but your, your comments led me to that reflection. Yeah. So please continue. Right. They've put a lot of effort into the electoral process. And Jimmy Carter, who's the head of the Carter uh, Institute, and they go around observing, certifying elections and rec- making recommendations on elections. Jimmy Carter is on record. You can look it up on YouTube. He said the Venezuelan electoral system is the best in the world. I repeat, a former president of the United States said the Venezuelan electoral system is the best in the world. That's the system that the United States is now calling fraudulent. So, and we could go into, into some of the reasons why Carter made that statement, because, it, it, again, things that we could learn from other countries on what they're doing and how other countries do things in, in ways that we, we might want to adopt things. But basically, going back to Article 233 in the new Constitution, it had a succession. And, and, and very simply, if the president and vice president abandoned office, and that would be from things like death or, or uh, mental illness or something like that, then the third person in the line of succession, which is the president, of the National Assembly would be able to take that person's place. Mm -hmm. But obviously, President Maduro and his vice president were actually quite well uh, um, in the office and had not abandoned the the office, so that Guaido had no constitutional right to claim himself to be the interim president. 
And now there's a new National Assembly, so he's not even head of the National Assembly anymore. So he has no even standing as a um, National Assembly member. Excuse me, Roger, and that's exactly the logic that the European, what was it, commission used to no longer back him as the leader based on that obvious little piece of information you just shared. He's no longer in the National Assembly president. I might mention a little bit about that, the electoral system there. This is, they, they have both paper ballots and electronic ballots. So it, it, I'll just run through it quickly, but it, it's something that, you know, in the United States where every state has different electoral rules and they're, they're kind of confusing, they're, they have a unified national system. When you go to the voting booth, you have to go to the place where you're registered and your name will be on a list, and then you go to the actual voting booth, which they call the MESA table, and you show them a photo ID card, and they see see that your name is is registered. But even to prevent any fraud, you then have to give your thumb onto an electric reader that biometrically verifies your identification. So there's three ways of verifying. It's like you're on the list, you have a photo ID, and you're biometrically proven to be who you claim to be. Right. Um, you then go to a electronic voting machine, and you vote on that voting machine. But then the machine spits out a, a paper confirmation of what you voted on. And you then get that piece of paper, and you could say, oh, that paper is exactly what I voted on. You fold that paper um, and then you put it into a sealed box so that now there's both an electronic record of how you voted and a paper record of mm-hmm. who you voted. The reason why that's important is because after every election where the United States candidate loses, that's they claim that the, that the election fraud. is fraudulent. And so that, then they go out and they say, okay, maybe the electronic vote was, was tampered. So we're going to count all the paper ballots. And so then... Which, by the, the way, the, they've dutifully have done on several elections yes, just to satisfy. They, they, they've done that a number of times. Right. And, and, and not only that, but the paper ballots, at the end of election day, you have observers from all the political parties at the Mesa. And they open the, the ballot box and they count the paper ballots. And they, they compare that to the electronic vote. And then they can't send in the electronic vote to the central authority until all the political parties agree that indeed that's the correct vote. So you have another level of verification there. It's, it's an absolute full, foolproof system. It's not a cheap system. You have to invest the money in, in a lot of that equipment, but it is as foolproof an electoral system as you can get. The person who votes also uh, has to sign at, after it's over, the person has to sign their signature, so that's another proof of who that person was, and then they put their pinky in indelible ink because then they can't come back and vote again. Mm-hmm. So there's all these safeguards for a, a fraud-free election. I think that's so and, important. And ones that other yeah. countries mm-hmm. uh, could well learn how, how to do. Exactly. I think that's really important because we throw around these terms by the media and we just the narrative is Maduro is a dictator and, and, and there's this authoritarian regime in Venezuela. Uh, and in fact, as you've indicated, they have the most integrable types of elections based on the way that's been constructed. That's the envy of most of the world, according to Jimmy Carter and others. You know, he doesn't just observe the election 
in Venezuela, the Jimmy Carter Center has observed elections throughout the world. So they they come from a place where they, and, and, and certainly no one ever, as long as you're focusing everyone's attention on Venezuela's elections, they don't focus on our elections. <laughs> Which obviously are further from being impervious to tampering. But do you mind circling back? I, I don't want to get into the weeds so much. But I do think in your article, you indicate that Alfred DeZayas, the United Nations independent expert on the promotion of a democratic and equitable international order, tweeted, quote, Article 233 of the Venezuelan Constitution is inapplicable and cannot be twisted into legitimizing Guaido's self-proclamation as interim president. A coup is a coup. You end your article with that. And I think that's from an independent United Nations person. And people may say the United Nations is not always so independent. And I would agree. And that's because of the Western influence that oftentimes has been impacting things like the OPCW that we've, that if you're paying attention to is under great scrutiny right now. Um, But I don't want to go too far off track here. Is there anything else that you want to add to the claim that we auto and now Biden has recognized him as a leader as well. So he's basically endorsing all this nonsense. And you've laid it out in your article and other people have too. But it just doesn't get the airtime in the United States at all. Is there anything else you want to add to those that may have doubts about that? Well, I think the, the point I think that you're making is a, it's a good point is that for a large part, American foreign policy about these regime change projects, it's a bipartisan policy. And the the proof positive was that was um, Trump's State of the Union address in 2020, where, if you remember, at the end of the address, Nancy Pelosi stood up and ripped up Trump's speech. And, you know, there's a great show of partisan bickering. But the one thing that they had complete unity on was at one point in the middle of Trump's speech, he points to the gallery, and then Juan Guaido has been invited as a special guest of the, gov- of the U.S. government, and Juan Guaido stands up, and the entire U.S. Congress, the House and the Senate, stands up and gives him standing ovation. That was the only thing that the Democrats and the Republicans seemed to agree upon that particular evening. Uh-huh. So there, there are nuances between the, the two parties, and there's nuances within the parties, but on on issue of the U.S. hegemony, that means rule with the em- emphasis on domination, on the rest of U.S. Pol- policy, which is hegemony over the world, any challenge to that hegemony, such as Venezuela, is slated for destruction. Yeah, and th- th- let me pivot with the, the limited time we have left with you tonight, which is about eight more minutes or so. You wrote an article just published on May 24th, 2021, Alex Saab versus the Empire, how the U.S. is using lawfare to punish a Venezuelan diplomat. And it's a fascinating reality that's not really been reported at all. And I think the American public, if they knew these facts, would be absolutely stunned. Apparently, well, first off, in your article, you cite Sarah Flounders of the International Action Center, who pointed out that 15 of the 39 countries under illegal U.S. sanctions are African. So, first of all, the U.N. has come out in the past, this century, in order to indicate that these sanctions that the U.S. just unilaterally puts on other nations do not have legal bearing. In fact, it was October 16, 2002. The General Assembly adopted a resolution calling on states 
not to recognize unilateral coercive economic measures, precisely like the types that have been applied to Venezuela in 39 nations by the United States that we've been talking about tonight. It adopted a resolution on unilateral coercive economic measures. The General Assembly called on all states not to recognize or apply such measures or legislation imposed by any state across territorial boundaries which were contrary to recognized principles of international law. Adopting the resolution by a recorded vote of 133 in favor to two against, with Israel and United States being against, and two abstentions of Australia and Latvia, the Assembly reiterated its call for repeal of unilateral extraterritorial laws that impose coercive measures contrary to international law on corporations and nationals of other states. Also, by the text, the Assembly decided to include in the provisional agenda of its 59th session an item entitled, quote, Elimination of Unilateral Extraterritorial Coercive Economic Measures as a Means of Political and Economic Compulsion, end quote. So the representative of the United States explaining her delegation's vote against the resolution said the text was a direct challenge to the sovereign right of states in the free conduct of their economic relations. It also undermined the international community's ability to respond to acts that were offensive to international norms and for which there must be consequences. You can examine those comments for what they're worth. I think it's pretty obvious that it's the U.S. policy of sanctioning all of these countries in the world that they don't agree with that's the most, quote, offensive to international norms for which there must be consequences, end quote. The basis of the 2002 UN resolution is the realization that U.S. sanctions appear to always negatively impact the majority population much greater than the government officials it claims to be directed at. Secondly, it's used in a coercive way that results in population impact on the population that, that almost always makes life miserable and unbearable for the majority population. Ultimately, some believe may motivate the government to change their policies to be more in line with U.S. foreign policy desires rather than in line with free choices a sovereign state would be expected to make independent of any such foreign intervention. That's the coercive nature. And thirdly, that the supposed veracity of the claim of violation of human rights being the primary driver for the application of U.S. sanctions is totally contradicted by the fact that if we have great human rights violators such as Saudi Arabia that have a government that acts as like a vassal state to the dictates of our U.S. foreign policy and therefore have been largely immunized from sanctions, then that suggests the real nature of our sanctions, the huge power of it. So I can act in complete congruence with international law, but actually be violating a unilateral sanction types of, of issues that the United States has put on one of these 39 countries. And in fact, that's what happened with respect to this diplomat from Venezuela who got arrested in Cape Verde off the coast of Africa there and has been held for what is it, close to a year? Over uh, a year, yes. Yeah, yeah, please tell us about... March of last year. Yeah, yeah, tell us uh, the, the fact that the United States does not recognize his diplomatic status and basically move forward, and basically we've we've incarcerated someone that's really should have diplomatic immunity to begin with, but also 
was just engaging in his job for his government. Yeah. Can you fill in the, uh, the sure. blank spots on yeah, that? According to international law, diplomats have immunity, even at the time of war. You, you cannot arrest a, a diplomat. You can expel the diplomat from your country, but you cannot arrest a diplomat. So this is a, a, a major violation of international law. So we have Venezuela is now under asphyxiating sanctions. And I think we should add that sanctions is just a half a word. It's really illegal sanctions. The UN says that the correct term is unilateral coercive measures. Mm-hmm. And what they mean by that is that the only legal type of sanctions are those that are done by the UN Security Council. But individual countries cannot do sanctions. And why not? Why is that a violation of international law? The reason for that is because it is collective punishment. In other words, Mm -hmm. the United States gripe is with the Maduro administration, but it's the people of Venezuela that are now being denied food and medicine. And the conditions there are really dire there. So so Venezuela sent a, a special envoy Alex Saab, to go from Caracas to go to fly to Iran. And his flight made a routine stop at an island that are off the coast of Africa. The, the, the island nation, is the archipelago nation, is, it goes by the name of Cabo Verde, or, or in English, Cape Verde. It's a, it's a former Portuguese colony, so they, they use the word Cabo Verde. So this was just a technical fueling stop. Saab was taken off the plane and was arrested and has been detained ever since. And he was detained simply for being going to do legal international trade. But what his crime, and I put crime in, in scare quotes, is that they would, it was designed to circumvent the U.S. blockade that was trying to starve the Venezuelan people. And his case is a very important case because it sets important legal precedences. Uh, it, it sets the precedent about extra-legal judicial abuse because Saab is now under arrest in Cabo Verde, but he didn't violate any rule or any law that, of Cabo Verde. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it would be sort of like if a French woman wore a bikini which was illegal to do in Saudi Arabia, and this French woman visited Belgium, and then the, the Saudis called up the Belgians and said, arrest this, this woman. It's kind of absurd. Right. Um, it was a violation of his diplomatic status, and particularly an insult because he's an ambassador to the African Union. So it's an insult to the African peoples as well. And then there's strong evidence that he, he was tortured and was forced to make false confessions. So there's, there's major legal, political, and, and, and humanitarian issues involved with the Alex Saab case. Yeah, it just puts the fear of God in you, you know, if you're a Venezuelan diplomat or anyone. I guess what strikes me in reading your article, which was, I really enjoyed the information, but it was just the impunity of our country to, it's, it's, it's like the, the, yeah. the textbook definition of a bully. Let's go out and play a game. And if I'm losing, I'm going to start changing the rules of the game to whatever I want. And I can because I can beat you up. And in fact, Saab was a Venezuelan businessman, as you said. 
and a special envoy uh, for Venezuela and held this diplomatic immunity. And uh, he was entertained, basically, you know, as you indicated, he was basically kidnapped. It's striking that we as a nation, based on our size, can impose unilateral sanctions on countries that are not in our orbit, you know, ones that are not paying homage to us and doing what we want them to do in their own foreign policy, even when it's in violation of international law or findings by the UN. And then if a third country dares to exercise its trading rights to do business with that country, the U.S. can impose additional unilateral sanctions on the trade of that country. And so at the end of the day, even the U.N. back in earlier in 2002 or talked about how countries are so afraid of the United States, they'll bend over backwards not to do anything that approaches trade with a country they've deemed they've been told not to trade with. That is the largest violation of the sovereignty and sovereign choices of a nation in black and white. Listen, we are just about out of time. I wanted to share with our audience that we've had the great pleasure of visiting with Roger Harris. We have been reviewing a couple of his articles. The latest one was published in Counterpunch, uh, and it's Alex Saab, this diplomat-related article. But let me ask you, before we more formally thank you, if people are interested in accessing your writings, Roger, what would be the best way for them to access some of these articles? Well, one place would be just to go to Counterpunch and do a search for Roger Harris, and that would give you, give you a lot of articles. There's also um, on the board of directors of a humanitarian organization called the Task Force on the Americas. And if you uh, did a web search for the Task Force on the Americas, that would be another good place. Um, not, not simply for, for myself, but for issues that particularly relating to Latin America and the Caribbean. Very good. So that's the Task Force on the Americas, and we've been visiting with Roger Harris, and its name is spelled just the way it sounds. Roger, thank you so much for your time tonight and your articles. I will look forward to continuing to uh, follow your work. There's so much to, to know about Venezuela that's not making it to the eyes and ears of the American public. The American public are really decent people, if they know the truth and it stinks to high heaven, they will, they, they will do something about it. So thank you for continuing to put out this, this counter-narrative, and we really appreciate the time tonight. Thank you very much. Good night. So in conclusion, and as a postscript to our interview with Roger Harris, we should be reminded of the fixing the facts around the policy, the famous quote from the Downing Memo, and its implications here. The policy is that you forfeit your sovereign choices and do as we say when and if they're in conflict with U.S. foreign policy because we are such a powerful nation, the we being U.S. foreign policy dictates. If you do not, we impose unilateral sanctions and other coercive measures. Instead of respecting give me liberty or give me death in international law, we force nations to submit to our desires over their own free choices. President Obama did it with his 2015 baseless and unilateral claim that Venezuela poses an unusual and extraordinary threat to the national security of the United States. There's no evidence to support that statement, but the veracity of it is not based on evidence, but instead because we say so, just like a bully would say so. See you next week.
Coming up next, do not go anywhere unless you're not on KOOP.org right now. Switch on over to the internet if you're on the FM dial to hear Emo Diaries with co-op's very own Stephanie at the Disco. I can't wait. And we go out as we do every week with Land of Naivety. See you.